You're listening to There Auto Be a Law, the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. Hey, good listener. morning. Good morning. Traditional. <laughs> welcome, welcome back. Joining us again, we have Professor William Wyden from the University of Miami School of Law and Philip Koopman, Associate Professor at Carnegie Mellon University and man who will not call a Tesla recall a recall. He wants to call it something else. It is a notification of safety defect. I like that. That's and really then, awesome. then the Tesla fans can't hassle you about saying it's not a recall. Well, of course it is. It's a re- the recall is the administrative process, and the right. other update is the remedy, which this is like the only show I ever hear that gets that right. But yes, we're on the same page there. <laughs> Excellent. I love that. I want to try and start using that. So I uh, want to follow up, follow up on what we were talking about last episode. So let's jump into a little bit more on duty of care. I think, Michael, you had some specific questions there. Well, there's um, there's kind of we talked in the last episode about the SAE standard and the levels one through five and and how those have been you know written to sort of apply. We use them a lot. You know, it's it's sometimes it's hard to refer to these different systems without reference to the SAE levels. Particularly, we're talking to someone who's not that familiar with these things, but. You know, well, the Michael, SAE if all the other kids jumped term. off a cliff. Would you jump off a cliff? No, I would not. <laughs> and that's one reason why, you know, when I first read your book, Phil, I was really attracted to the driving modes idea. I think it's it's much more explainable to people than using numbers to denote these things. You know, you're actually you've got the testing mode, you've got um the other descriptors that kind of uh, capture what you mean versus saying level two, which is, you know, essentially meaningless. Um, and but nobody even you, knows what level three is really. Every time I hear right. it described, just about everyone gets it wrong compared to the document. Yeah, I agree. Do, and do, so why don't, why don't I dive in and just yeah. do the four modes to kick us off since they're basically my fault. So I might as well be the one to, <laughs> to do that. All right. So I have this proposal that's been kicking around for a while. Uh, and it shows up in interesting places that instead of the levels, the levels are for engineers, but we need something that works for regulation and works for ordinary folks. And people get so confused about the levels, especially two and three. And level two plus is e- illegal according to the standard. Not a lot, but I mean, it's, it's, it's invalid and who knows what that means. So instead, I, I, I took a bunch of bites at this apple and I finally got the one I like that I, um, and it has four modes. One mode is testing. If you're testing, then you need a qualified test driver or somebody like an employee or a contractor. And if it's testing, it should not be in the hands of the general public. Kind of done there. Okay. Then there's three other modes. One is conventional. It's a car. It might have um, adaptive cruise control. And I hope it has anti-lock brakes and and automatic emergency braking and stuff like this, right? Okay. That's a conventional car. Uh, There's a autonomous vehicle. Think robot taxi, robot truck, and an autonomous vehicle requires no human attention to drive. It just drives itself. There's no standby driver. There's nothing else, which leaves the messy bit, the messy, the awkward middle. We have a whole paper called the awkward middle. And what I did 
in essence, and and J thirty sixteen is so so um, the way it's constructed is so messy that it's not what I'm going to say is almost true, but not quite true. It's levels two and three, uh, and and it could be level one, but no one actually does that. So we're going to know that, All right? So it's level two or three put together because in the end there's supposed to be a driver in the seat working with the automation and they have some jobs and it's all a continuum and breaking it between level two and level three is completely arbitrary uh, from, from my point of view, from a, a consumer and regulatory point of view. Uh, so, so anything where there's a human, you're taking credit for a human being around to help the automation is supervisory mode, the human super. So the, the car isn't helping the person drive. The car is driving and the person's helping. Even when you have automated steering, even on a level two system where it's the car is driving. Don't tell me you're driving. You're not even holding the wheel. You're glancing away through the road. You're playing with your phone, right? You're not driving. The car's driving and you're trying to pay attention to supervise it no matter which, where you are in the level two, level two plus, level three scale. So we call that whole thing supervisory. So you have testing, which is self-explanatory. You have conventional, conventional and the distinction we make is if the car is not sustained steering, you're conventional. Once the car sustains steering, then you're supervisory if there has to be a person somehow involved. And when there's literally no person responsible for driving, now you're up at autonomous. So okay. four modes. What do you mean by sustained steering? Like what's the length of time? Well, that, so that's a J3016 concept because I tried to be compatible. Okay. So sustained steering. The thing is there's... um. The, the good difference is there's a thing called lane keeping assistance and lane centering. Right. So lane keeping assistance, the, the the image I like is when you get little kids bowling and you put the, the guards in the gutters and the ball bounces off the guards, you know, when you're going down the highway and it's steering you back into the lane, when you hit the, the dotted line, most of the time it does that anyway, you know, no one would confuse that with good driving, right? So that's not sustained steering. It's momentary intervention that's sort of bouncing you around, Right. But as soon as you have that that the car is actually doing the steering, lane centering, so lane keeping assistance is bouncing around. Lane centering is what it says. It's keeping you in the lane for more than a count of three or a count of five. The, the board is fuzzy, but you'll think if if you can basically setting aside uh, warnings, right? If you can take your hand off the wheel for five seconds, even on a curve, and the car is going to track the lane, that's sustained steering. Got and the it. lane centering feature is is the typical bottom feature you hear about that that has that capability. Okay, so the next time I have this enabled in my car, I should just tell my wife, "No, I'm supervising the car. It's not driving itself." No, it is. It it is driving, and you're supervising. Okay. And uh, the degree, well, you know, it, it's steering, man. What do you call? It? I mean, there's you got uh, gas, <laughs> you got steering. If you're doing both, I call that driving. You know now. <laughs> It's actually vehicle motion control, right? But right. but I think it's more. I think it's a better mental model to say you're supervising the automation than to say the automation supervising you, because that's just not true. Right. Okay. Right. Either either way, it's just a tough sell for me to put. To right. my yeah, but it's so I call it supervisory. <laughs> you're supervising the operation of this automation. To be clear, you retain some or all responsibility for safety. But we should acknowledge that people are terrible at that, and, and the regulations should accommodate that reality and not not set the people up for failure. Okay, so we want that's sort of a separate side discussion, you know, the different top thread of the discussion. But the idea is, 
if you're testing, you'd better be a chain test driver and the car is going to have defects and, and no retail customer should be testing. That's just a really bad idea. If it's conventional, you're driving. Okay. And, and you know you're driving, so it's fine. If it's a robot taxi, fall asleep in the back. That's the point. And if it's supervised, you're responsible for providing some aspect of safety. And depending on the car, that can vary wildly from it's okay to watch a movie, but be there when the bell rings to you know, jump in every 10 seconds because this thing just knows about lane centering, doesn't know about obstacles, anything in between. Any attempt to divide it more finely than that falls apart. So we're just going to call it supervisory. And the good news is you can actually create rules that can accommodate that whole span with a very simple set of rules. Okay. And that supervisory mode you've talked about, we've talked about that in a, a separate episode where humans are really bad at saying, okay, the car's in control for the next 10 minutes. And then, oh my God, I have to take over. Well, like, well, in supervisory, what you want is the car is responsible for managing the driver's attention. So oh the car God. is, so if the car, if the car concept is it's okay to watch a movie, then the car has to be able to deal with the reality that people take a long time disengage, to get disengaged from watching a movie. If the car says, you know, I expect you to notice the disabled fire truck in your lane uh, with a three-second warning, then the car had better be doing gaze tracking and make sure that your eyes are on the fire truck if you're supposed to notice and react to it. So when it when it comes to um, the duty of care in this situation, functionally, you are driving yourself down the road and say you enable autopilot or whatever the system is that is a supervisory system there's there's a kind of a a handoff you're not just handing off control of the yeah, it, gets, it gets tricky you're yeah, handing off the... duty of care you're handing off a legal concept to your car right anyway. right, right and so it yeah. isn't about about who's driving from a regulatory and legal point of view it's about the handoff of the duty of the care that's exactly right and that follows the who's driving idea let me do right. the three easy ones first in testing the manufacturer should have should be responsible for making sure the test drivers are qualified and behaving responsibly. You can't pin it on the poor test driver. It's got to be the manufacturer has to have a lot of skin in the game for testing because they're putting potentially defective software out there, and who knows if the test driver can even counteract the defect. So for testing, the manufacturer has to be front and center. For conventional, guess what? It's the human driver, same as it always was. And for a robotaxi, there should be a stated duty of care for robotaxis so people don't have to fight their way through the court system to get that worked out. It's inevitable it will be end up there, and we should not put put uh, obstacles in the way of people getting there. We should just say, okay, it's just robotaxi, duty of care is the manufacturer, done. Let's move on to the hard one, which is the, the messy middle, right? And so at that point, you are essentially, you know, the car has to make sure that the human is capable of taking over at that point, right? In order well, for a duty of care to transfer, there's a lot that goes on in the in the handoffs. Well, let, let, yes, yeah, good. I, I would say that you have to understand what the strategy is of companies when a human is in the loop. Okay, in a level two. Tesla's owner's manual says you have to be ready to take over at all time. And I think at one point, maybe it still does, you were supposed to keep a hand on the wheel. Okay. 
we've seen ads where Elon Musk does. doesn't do it's, that. It still wants you to keep a hand on the wheel, even though right. some testing shows you can go 30 seconds to two minutes with the hand off the wheel before it gets upset. Right. But so the point is that the human driver in the in the level two plus plus Tesla, assuming you agree that's what it is, uh, they're the receptacle of liability. Tesla has mostly been successful in saying when there's an accident that it's the human driver's fault because the concept is the human driver is responsible at all times. It gets a little more complicated with the level three, like Mercedes, but even Mercedes contemplates that the human driver is responsible for safety. And so the way that those companies approach things, as long as there's a human in the loop, the duty of care remains with the human. But let me unpack that. So in any level two, two plus, two plus, add as many pluses you want. Right now, the duty of care stays 100% with the human. And, and if there's a crash, it's on you to prove manufacturing or design defect. Good, good luck with that. That's really tough. Uh, for level three, if you if you have a plain reading of what level three is supposed to be, the duty of care should transfer to the vehicle when you press the go button and transfer back 10 seconds after you get the warning. That's the, the European ALKS standard. But in fact, when Mercedes says we assume we assume uh, we're responsible, what they mean is you can sue us for product defects, and you actually retain the duty of care even while you're watching a movie, which is kind of problematic. Right. It seems to me it's almost a deceptive practice to say that we give you your time back, when in fact the price of getting your time back is you're liable if the machine. Uh, hit someone. It sounds well, like autopilot is on. Are they setting a trap in a way? I mean, well, no, no. There's a name for this. It's called the moral crumple zone. The idea is you have a, a piece of equipment that you know has a design problem, and this is not unique to cars. This this happens a lot. I've seen this in action in many places. You have a, a system equipment that you know is going to malfunction and cause a loss, and your plan is to to figure out which human is nearby conveniently and blame them instead. <laughs> so what were you just talking about? This is uh, what I wanted to ask you from your jurist.org article. Uh, this is from last August, uh, and I'm going to quote from it. Second, there's the thorny, thorny question of liability following a takeover request. Does the operator of the level three vehicle potentially have liability for any accident immediately following a takeover request or only for accidents occurring after a grace period such as the 10 seconds specified for ALKS. Um, so well, this is zero what we just- wrong number. Zero well, is the I, wrong number. We saw reports of Teslas having crashes where the autopilot disengaged less than one second before the crash. Um, there's there was speculation as to intent, which I don't I don't know intended. There are valid technical reasons for that to have happened with no malicious intent. Uh, so I don't know either way, but it's unreasonable to say, all right, the car drives you over a cliff in, in a tenth of a second before it goes over. It says, oh, by the way, you got it. It's your fault. You know, that that makes no sense at all. Uh, and so the question, so it can't be zero. And the question is, what's the what's the grace period between the time the the alarm buzzes and says, hey, human, get back, jump back in here, and how long uh and, and the humans actually should be held responsible. Right. Because like the Mercedes system, that's restricted to well, traveling below 40 miles per hour only there has to be a car you're following in front of you so it, it's 
it's scenario of where you're going to get into an accident well, is they relatively call it, minor. They call it traffic jam pilot. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. So you're yeah. not going to be traveling at 60 miles per hour plus and, and hitting some object at 60 miles per hour. You, you know, if you get into an accident, you're getting into a, a fender bender, which hopefully knock wood, no one gets or, injured. Or the reason there's a traffic jam is there's a crash and there's dazed crash victims walking out into the highway and I hope it sees them. Oh boy. See, well, I, I assume the Mercedes That's would right. have bring, to- bring the safety guy to the party. It's always <laughs> a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, great. Let's talk about the weather now. Uh, hey, hey let, me, let me jump in. I got a question. Uh, several years ago, Elaine Hertzberg was killed in Arizona by a self-driving car. At the time, it was owned by Uber. They've gotten out of it. But she was killed. There was no duty of care, as far as I know based on what you've been telling me, what was the legislative and legal response in Arizona to that happening? Because the it was legal for them to operate the, the car. Elaine Hertzberg was killed by the car. You would think something would happen, right? There'd be some correction of the regulations. So what did happen? Well, the, well, state, the state did a duck and cover. Yep. And Bill can talk about what happened to the safety driver. Well, the yeah, the first point is that the prosecutors decided not to prosecute the company. Okay. And if one had a theory of a computer driver, one might have said, oh well, you could prosecute the company. Now this was during testing, and what was found uh was that the test driver apparently was distracted by looking at her phone. And so she was not able to intervene. Although and to be clear, Bill, that that was disputed. But continue. That is the official story. But she the disputed the, that. the official line is that she was distracted, yep. uh, and that means that she was not doing her job of paying attention at all times. Well, well she and to be clear, to be fair to her, she says she was um, distracted by a company mandated phone as opposed to personal entertainment. That's the story. But can but continue either way. But, well, however. Yeah. She, the point was, it was alleged that she wasn't doing her job. She was there specifically to prevent the accident. And she was charged with, I forget in Arizona what the technical term is, but essentially negligent homicide. And she copped a plea is what it boiled down to. So did the legislature jump in and say, well, this is an obvious defect in the, in the laws. We need to correct this. No. They moral, didn't do moral anything. Crumple zone. That's the moral crumple zone in action. I mean, well, Uber doesn't. Do if the human driving. is responsible, then there's nothing more to do. The idea is that the human was there to present, prevent the accident. The human didn't prevent the accident. The human was the proximate cause of the death, and it had nothing to do with the car. Now, if you if this had been in testing mode, okay, under uh, Phil's four levels. Right, one could say that no, the company has responsibility for uh, accidents that happen while they're testing, for, for supervising testing. Bill, Bill mentioned J thirty eighteen earlier. That document, that's SAE standard, was heavily revised to incorporate the lessons learned from this Uber ATG fatality. And so, any company who's not following it is is risking a replay of of that outcome. I'm risking a replay uh, physically, but not necessarily legally, right? There's whoa, whoa. still 
I mean, the replay was pretty favorable to Uber legally. They they had other issues, but legal legal repercussions weren't among them. So under your well, modes, I'm, I'm still a little little confused here. So when I go from supervisory to fully autonomous, I don't I don't remember what what exactly did you call that final mode? Oh, autonomous. Yep. Autonomous. Okay. So, okay, so I autonomous. picked the right word because you came up with it easily instead hey. of being obscure. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. That took a lot of work. You'd be surprised, <laughs> you'd be surprised how much work it took to come no, up with it. I'm sure that one, that was probably the hardest part. So uh, autonomous mode. Um, this is my, at, at what point is it that I, as the owner of the vehicle in autonomous mode, at what point is it separating um, who's liable? I mean, am I the owner of the vehicle or is it the computer driver that's liable? And is it, hey, I just got an over-the-air update yesterday. Do I have a new computer driver? Like who's who's responsible or is it just my insurance company? So once you have the modes, then you can hang liability, a liability framework off the modes, right? And the concept we have is that if it's autonomous, the manufacturer is presumptively responsible for anything bad that happens because they're the only ones who can really do anything about it. I mean, if the software has defects, what's the owner supposed to do about that? Keep my LIDAR and, and cameras clean? Like Well, well, and so there are issues like, did you, did you uh, clean it? Did you maintain it? Uh, but if you want the manufacturer to be the first stop for recourse, and the manufacturer has two options. One is to say, hey, my car is not going to operate if the LIDARs are too dirty to operate. You know, that sounds like a good idea, right? My car is not going to operate if the maintenance hasn't been done. And the and then the other thing they can do is if somebody maliciously circumvents it, the manufacturer could go after the owner. I mean, they could, but the victim shouldn't have to sort that out. The victim of any crash needs one-stop shopping and it should be the manufacturer because they by far has the have the most control over the outcomes. So I think based off of that, there's no way any manufacturer is going to sell an autonomous car to an individual within my lifetime. Yeah, I don't think that was going to happen <laughs> either way. Well, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, there are other reasons. There, there are really good reasons like um, um, leasing so that you can, so that they can get fleet maintenance. Because now you're talking like aircraft certified technicians maintaining this technology. It's going to be that way for a long time, right? right. So a, a fleet, a fleet owner, a fleet operational model makes a lot more sense. You know, you could, you know, you can timeshare jet. I'm told. <laughs> I'm certainly not in that income bracket. But you know, you could, you can, you can own quote unquote own a jet, but it isn't like you're out there changing the oil yourself. And so I think it's going to be more like that. You know, one of the fallacies that the companies uh, argue about is they say, look, this technology saves lives. And if you if you prevent us or slow us down, you're killing grandma, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and those claims are really not well founded based on the number of miles driven, the diversity of the systems and so forth. OK, uh, but here's the fallacy. They think that if we reduce accidents by 90%, okay, that would be certainly a great thing. But in the 10% of cases where there's still an accident, then the question is, uh, okay, uh, you should perhaps, Phil and I would say, the, the manufacturers should be responsible if in the t those 10% of cases, the AV behaved badly to an extent that we would hold a human who behaved the same way responsible. 
what the industry is essentially saying is, no, 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 we're such good guys because we saved all these lives that we get a free hit in this particular case and we shouldn't have any liability. That's effectively the position that they're taking. In other words, they shouldn't have liability for a discrete accident case because sure, that's going to happen, but you should credit us with all the lives that we saved. And so we shouldn't have liability in that individual accident case. Well, how do you get over that? Because everyone makes that assumption that, well, humans are horrible drivers. Computers are great. Computers are perfect at everything. It, humans are surprisingly good, especially if they're not drunk. And there's ways other than robotaxis to mitigate drunk drivers ask, Pretty much any developed country except ours, you know, and they'll they'll tell you how you can do that. Um, the, but the the issue is that, uh, and and there's there's only evidence that computers seem to be getting better at low severity crashes. There's no evidence whatsoever about high severity crashes fatalities. The latest Waymo report comes out and says that we just jury's still out, right? Um, but the the issue is that you. There's more to life than net safety. There's redistribution of harm. There's whether you're acting in a negligent way when you caused harm. And, and like Bill said, uh, let me try let me try and make this very concrete. If you run through a red light, if a computer if a person runs through a red light and they have a million miles of not a single traffic ticket, not a single thing, and they run through a red light, they don't get a free hit for having hit a pedestrian. You know, they're just as guilty of hitting the pedestrian as someone who has a bunch of tickets. Now, maybe the outcome's different. Maybe the judge uh, gives them some mercy and some leniency, but but guilty is guilty, right? Uh, and the car companies don't want to participate, to partake of that. They want them to be not guilty because they they had the millions of, of good miles. So that's a different, that's a double standard. And what we're saying is they should be held to the same time as humans. Humans don't get free hits. Cars shouldn't either. Now, if they really are 10 times safer, um, and have 10 times fewer crashes, then their insurance costs will be 10% and they're going to win that way. Right. Yeah. I mean, but that, that. that brings up a question. I, you guys are out there talking about this and we're really glad that you do because I think it's a you know, duty of care is in, um, in relation to AVs is a hugely important subject, but it's only you two guys and maybe us on a alternate Wednesdays, but and we appreciate, we appreciate you doing that, by the way. <laughs> Why aren't the insurance companies screaming about this? This seems like it seems like this is an issue that goes to the actual core of the insurance liability business. And what Michael brought up a couple of weeks ago is that they're showing that the money they're bringing in for premiums right now is no longer covering their outflow for liability damages. Isn't, isn't that what you came up with, Michael? Right, right. So- have you guys had any conversations with insurance companies or any speculation on why they seem to be asleep at the switch? I would say that that the insurance companies, I think, are taking a standoff position right now, right? I mean, they're going to adjust premiums if they if their current loss experience is that they're able to pay within a frame. I don't think they're terribly worried about the precision of did you improve, did you not improve. I suspect if you looked at the rates that you'd actually pay more insurance for things like a Tesla. 
the the area of of concern that I've heard raised in hearings is mostly by trial lawyers who push a duty of care because they understand that otherwise you won't be able to get recoveries for small accidents. Yeah, if if you have to do product defects, the entire uh, judicial system will will fall apart under the weight of those cases. Uh, in all aspects, there's not enough experts, there's not enough judges, there's not enough lawyers who know the technology. It's just not going to work. Um, right. So, so the trial lawyers, my understanding is they they kind of like duty of care because it it takes a case that doesn't have to have a lot of technical expertise and puts it in a venue that everyone knows how to deal with, instead of gratuitously introducing technical considerations where it's really not not that relevant to the outcome. I mean, if you ran a red light, you ran a red light. Kind of done. Yeah, that, right. that's and, no real reason to dive and in the loss, to figure it right. out. Right. The loss experience in the courts for Tesla is that uh, I don't want to say without exception, but it seems close to without exception. Uh, they've avoided liability. Um, well, they blame the driver. Case. They sell the narrative. Hey, guess what? The real tail customer is cosplaying being a tester. So even though our thing does the, the wrong thing at the worst time, they were supposed to you know, our cosplaying test driver was supposed to catch it, so it's their fault, and the jury's apparently just eating that up. Yeah, that's right. kind I of think the, the trap. Yeah, the bigger problem is going to come, I suspect, when you start having accidents with heavy trucks. Yeah, right? I never because... want to go on the road again. <laughs> so, for, from the insurance industry point of view, to get back to Fred's question, what I've seen is there aren't that many vehicles on the road compared to human-driven cars. It's just not a lot of vehicles. We're not talking Teslas. We're talking hardcore robo-taxis and robo-trucks now, right? And what the dynamic I saw was insurance companies sort of getting in line to buy market share, waiting for the market to increase. And and they'll say things like, and this is this I've seen this publicly on on um, discussions at and conferences. They'll say, well, we have a $10 million policy limit. Uh, and so our downside is limited. Uh, the company eats the rest, and um, you know there just aren't that many cars. So they, for them, ten million taking ten, putting ten million on the betting table to see what happens to buy part of a huge lucrative market is a is a reasonable business decision because they're, you know, they're they're all about the odds. They're not actually insurance doesn't actually get you safety. It puts pressure for some safety. But just because you can buy insurance does not mean you're as safe as as normal folks would want you to be. So is the legislative problem just that the right person has been killed yet? <laughs> yes. I would say that's a big part of it. And, and to put that in context, I'm not going to disagree with that. The reason we have regulatory agencies or or product bans is because the wrong person was killed. It, it always comes back to that, or wrong set of people were killed, or the wrong optics. I mean, it always comes back to that. Look at look at all the regulatory and safety agencies or building codes. I, I teach a class where we where I make my students do short stories of historical things, and there's uh, we got commercial building codes because of the Great Molasses Flood, where a huge tank of molasses broke loose and and a bunch of people were. Uh, you know, hit by scalding molasses, and and the outcome was we had commercial building codes, and we just go after story after story after story about you know this is why we have this regulation, this is why we have this regulation. So it should be no surprise that we have a new technology, uh, and we're in the U.S. where it's it's 
it's uh, go do what you want and it may become illegal later, but it's not illegal if we didn't say anything uh, different than Europe. Uh, you know, it, it usually takes the wrong sort of mishap to institute the regulation, not just a few everyday ones. In aviation, uh, Newt Rockney, the famous football coach, was killed. And my understanding of the history is that that was a big motivator to get safety regulation for commercial aviation. And we got car we got car safety regulations because of the famous uh, Pinto case, right? And then there was the was it the Pinto case or no? It was the it was the the book. I mean, you got you guys know that history. You guys yeah, unsafe at any speed. That's your, that's that's your history. Yeah, and a good example of that is um yeah the Ford Firestone rollovers that were occurring around the year 2000 where you know we got a massive law the Tread Act put in place you know because yeah. of a big event and that tracks with the history of auto industry safety concerns you know it's until some large scale a recall or large-scale defect happens that sheds light on how the industry has been misbehaving, it's very difficult to get laws passed to regulate their behavior. Yeah. Are, there if other, you look are there other products that ever go out to market that that basically use the, the public as onwitting guinea pigs? Like, yeah, I was trying to think I of would, other examples. Like, the drug industry can't do that. Food supplements. Uh, yeah. Well, Okay. Well, look at yes. look at the train, look at railroads for a while. The railroads, they had the legal system kind of in their pocket, but they used to kill thousands of people, okay? And they avoided regulation. The, the industry opposed the air brake. They opposed the automatic coupler. They opposed steel rail cars. And all of those things ended up getting imposed from the outside because the public finally were outraged at all the accidents, the head-on collisions, the cornfield meets, I think they called them sometimes. And finally, they had to, the public had to do something. They were partly motivated because people were already upset with the railroads because they were price gouging the farmers at the time. And so you had another reason to regulate them. And they two came together. And it wasn't until the Pennsylvania Railroad decided that they could sell safety in the early 1900s that you actually started to get public investigations of accidents because the Penzi would would tell people what happened but it so the AV industry looks to me like a pre-Pennsylvania Railroad industry situation almost to a T industry repeating 100 years later yeah right so when you guys testify in front of Congress and state legislators I I mean I'm going to make the naive assumption that at least a couple of those people have gone through tort classes and they're familiar with why regulations come about. Do they understand what you're saying? You're saying, hey, look, there's you're putting you're saying the computer is liable. So there's no one liable or or we need regulations because people are going to die or get maimed or injured. Or do they just look at you blankly? Some understand. <laughs> Would that be the and, minority but, or the majority? So but I, some... I'll give I'll give a shout out to Representative Shelley Kloba from Washington, who sent me this nice email saying she read my book, and I'm just like amazed and and flattered that she took the time to do that. So there are some good people out there who really care. Bill, I'm sorry, you I were think, saying. Yeah, I was going to say the other thing that has happened, and I I think I wrote this on, on my own, but maybe Phil, we co did it. 
that one of the things that people do in their own mind is they want to create a sense of an emergency. And if you have an emergency, then people understand why you might suspend the rules. Okay. And so part of the narrative about... Bill, do you mean because safety is urgent, registered trademark or trademark at least? <laughs> right. I don't. It could <laughs> that be. actually that actually is a slogan of one of the companies. Safety is urgent. Right. Oh, and okay. so the idea is we have a crisis on our highways. We're losing forty thousand people a year. That's an emergency. We have to act. And the second cause of emergency is we're going to lose to China, right? And boy, that would be terrible. And so the combination is, yeah, we hear you on the tort stuff and everything, but come on, guys, this is an emergency. We have to act. People we've got dying. to save lives and we've got to beat China. And they, in their own mind, either maybe for good reasons or ill, use that to justify why it is that they can cut corners on safety. That's at least what some of them have said. I've heard them say it. Michael, right. do you think China will beat us? No, I think that's a complete invention. Now, they they might beat us by um, hacking into all of our systems, uh, but that's not what the whole China scaremongering is about. Um, if you listen to folks on Capitol Hill, they're worried about money. They're worried about competition. And, you know, that's that's a that's a. Um, it's it's continuing to repeat itself every time Congress puts out a bill. You've got this contingent of folks who seem to think that we're in this uh, all uh, high stakes battle with China over the future of autonomous vehicles, and if, if we lose lose the American industry is doomed forever. I, I, I I've always found that to be facetious, and it's not, I don't understand where they're getting it from, but apparently it it is a pretty good motivator to get votes for their bills from racism. Right. One. One risk that I think we haven't really touched on, one risk that we're seeing with crews in the accident is that public opinion can turn against a technology in a way that actually might not be beneficial for the country, okay? Uh, and one of the things that has concerned me greatly is the way that we test automated vehicles. I am very, very concerned that a company would disproportionately test uh, in neighborhoods of persistent poverty or neighborhoods that have been historically disadvantaged, and that you would have a high-profile incident where a protected class of person or persons were killed, and then it would come out that, yeah, well, we were testing in the low-income neighborhoods because if we kill somebody, our judgment is less. Okay. Imagine the kind of headlines and social strife and backlash against the industry that that kind of accident could create. And so from my perspective, one of the things I've been pushing on the side is that when there's testing a state, it's a no brainer to have a regulation that says you have to have an equitable testing plan that assures that you're distributing the risk of testing throughout your community to stop an allegation that your testing was in a way that could harm a protected class. And nobody is interested in that. And yet it seems to me very protective of the industry. Do something so we don't have a high profile social event over autonomous vehicle companies. They're already on the margin with the lying, apparently lying that Cruz did with their accident. I'll say it, Cruz was lying. Cause I'm not a lawyer, I don't care. They were clear, lying. 
<laughs> to be clear, um, this is not hypothetical. Uh, an enterprising reporter uh, that I, I chatted with while I was prepping this um, put, did, a, did a look at all the crashes in San Francisco and found that a double-digit percentage were in or near the Tenderloin District, which is a, a you know a famously economically and socially disadvantaged area. Uh, and it was even worse because that's one of the most active emergency response areas in the country. And, and it should be no real surprise that goes together because a lot of the responses are for drug overdoses, things like this is my understanding. And so the, the tenderloin was really bearing a disproportionate brunt of the various incidents uh, reported by by police and fire departments and crashes, you know, a lot a lot of the bad stuff was happening in the Tenderloin, which is exactly what Bill's concerned about. That's not hypothetical. That played out in California. Well, what surprises me is that like Waymo, which is Google, they're based in Mountain View. There's no robo taxi service in Mountain View. There's no robo taxi service in Sunnyvale or Palo Alto or Atherton or where any of these people, where the executives live, where the companies are headquartered. Well, did, didn't they apply for that, though? Uh, did they? Did they get it yeah, or yeah. no? That's still up in the air. They were also applying to, I believe, travel at speeds of 60 miles per hour over, which I think yeah. is. They were applying for Los Angeles and they were applying for highway speeds because they want to get to the airport. That's right. Uh, yeah. I did yeah. not they want to get to the airport, not, you know, at, at highway speeds, not at surface roads. And, and in Phoenix, I think they are they started or they're about to start highway speeds to the airport in Phoenix, I think. I'm not and sure. That's exactly where I think is. things get even really interesting too. Another because there's less time to deal with crashes. I know that, that the driving is probably not as difficult as it is in a, well, a city. It's center, usually but... not as difficult except when it's not. Right. Uh, except <laughs> things go south. But also the yeah. other thing is pedestrian fatalities are dramatically uh in increased at higher speeds above like twenty miles an hour, twenty five right. miles an right. hour. The the Vision Zero folks will you know show you this graph that shows the lethality goes up dramatically above uh, city speeds. So that's yeah. a real concern. That was one reason when you know Cruise and these other manufacturers tout how many millions of miles they've driven. It's somewhat meaningless from the respect that they're driving them all at twenty five miles per hour under. Right, right, where there were lethalities expected to be low, even if you do right. bad things. Right, uh, and and but just so we're complete about that, if you take out the drunks. I don't know, Michael, do, we, we, can we use 250 million miles between fatality if you get rid of the drunks and the, the bad actors? That's a, it's it remarkably be hard to get that number. I don't it's know hard. how you get I mean, that I number. I think Fred and I have tried to figure out numbers like that, and it's but really it's, hard. Let's ballpark it at 250 because it's it's a little below 100 depending on on, on miles per crash versus, versus mile per fatality. But a little under 100, including all the drunks. And let's call it 250 without all the bad actors. So 250 million miles, they have seven, 243 million miles to go before we get ballpark 70% statistical confidence. Yeah, but that's not even right because the systems keep changing. Right. That's correct. That Every time they do an over-the-air update, it should invalidate the miles driven under the prior system. And you can see what happens that Bill hangs out with a safety engineer and I hang out with a lawyer and we start doing each other's talking points. <laughs> That's, Thanks, Bill. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but that's a valid question that people don't talk about. So, Bill, you mentioned they're saying people, this is an emergency and there's 40,000 deaths a year. We've talked about that a lot on this program. But what you're, it sounded like you were saying is that legislators are saying, well, we have to act. And so our solution is get rid of the humans. The, the, the solution is that AV technology is so important that it merits loose or no regulation. 
But it's almost like saying witchcraft is so important because. Well, but I'll I'll give you an example from the railroads. Okay, the railroads, the judges at the time were very very worried that regulation through tort liability would hamper the railroads, and the railroads were doing a very useful thing, although they weren't paying their freight by knitting the whole country together as an economic unit. And the legal system developed a series of crazy rules under a doctrine of proximate cause that would do things like the sparks from a rail lit a house on fire near the railroad track, okay? Then a second house caught fire and burned. They would say, oh, no, the second house wasn't caused, right? It was only the first house that was caused because we're going to so limit what counts as causation that the liability of the company for an accident will be reduced. And that was just a conscious thing that happened in the legal system. The judges did it, and I think it was wrong. But it's not unheard of that the legal system, in order to promote a technology, either through the judges or the regulation, lets things go. And then the question is, are you able to export the costs onto third parties, or are you forced to internalize the costs? And they're saying, we don't want to internalize the costs because we want to promote the development of the product. That's why they don't want liability, or they only want product liability, because they want a functional liability shield. I think there's an argument that the internet went through this same evolution 25 years ago, when the federal government basically said, you can do whatever the hell you want with no consequences because this is important. And of course, when that happened, those regulations became cast in bronze and we're still living with those today and seeing the consequences of that. I suspect that the AV industry is is pushing hard on that model to say, well, look, we're in the same position as the internet was back in 1990. We really need to, you know, push this forward because of all the lives we're going to save and the jillions of dollars people are going to make and yada, yada, yada. But the sub-agenda is that they're really trying to get the rules in place before people have a full appreciation for what those rules really mean uh, and, you know, build a business around those. Later on, it becomes very, very hard to change any of those rules. Uh, do you oh. think that's a tactic that they're consciously uh, employing or is this just something that's accidentally evolving oh they're absolutely doing this on purpose state by state uh bill and i have testified in several states there they have a model bill that has all the worst things you can imagine they're just ramming it through all the states they can because it's much harder to undo uh, now now there's a difference though between autonomous vehicles and the internet the internet doesn't involve thousand pound machines going down city streets, accelerating into pedestrians like like we've seen some of these vehicles do. So when you guys I, show I, up, are you are you the only two showing up pointing out these safety implications? Um, in Washington, the last hearing that I testified at and Phil testified at, there were a, quite a number of people from different avenues that testified against the bill. Is the Washington trial State. lawyers is, is in Washington State. The trial lawyers had people that testified against it. Uh, it for one, there were uh, obviously you sometimes get unions that are concerned. They have kind of a 
off to the side concern because they're interested in union jobs being displaced by vehicle autonomy. Uh, those are two that we've seen multiple times show up. Uh, and then there's other community-based uh, organizations uh, that are worried about uh, hindering first responders. There were testimony against what that would do to first responders in Washington cities. Uh, and so I would say probably, Phil, that it was maybe 70-30 of opposition to the bill in Washington, which is the first time we've seen that. Yeah, that, the, the tenor has changed dramatically since last summer. Um, it was the cruise accident, cruise, really. Yeah, the cruise mishap had a, had a whole lot to do with it. But not even just the cruise mishap, the, the whole mess we saw unplay, play out in San Francisco certainly got people in a in a negative mood. And then the the pedestrian dragging mishap was just the thing that, that cinched it. I take it all back. Kyle, thank you so much. <laughs> Sorry. So, you know, one of, one of the things that we think about, or I think about a lot of years, you know, they keep saying, oh, we're going to save all of these lives by... Maybe, maybe. Yeah, they right? say by we're going to save them, but maybe. We don't know how that's going to turn out. And, and the way they're doing it is by putting them in cars that go the speed limits <laughs> and that, that don't have a drunk driver or that these other things that we have... You could do that, that without robots, Michael. You don't yeah, we have do a, a, an active intelligence speed assistance as opposed to passive, which, you know, right. keeps cars at the speed limit. But Americans are completely opposed to that. It's a very hard thing to get through politically because people somehow think they have a freedom or a constitutional right to speed and do whatever they want. But that's not the case. But why do they think that people are want going to want to get into their slow vehicles when they have the option to speed in, a, in an automobile? It, it, it all doesn't really make sense to me. I, I, I Let me give you two responses. One is, if you had a fixed amount of money to spend on road safety, robotaxis are probably not the best bang for buck, right? But it's complicated because it's investor money rather than public money. And, you know, it's a complicated discussion. But but. Claiming that robotaxis are the only solution is just ridiculous because because other countries have shown us that that that's not really the case. There's lots of stuff you can do, except people have to want to put up with it, right? Right. Uh, right. Well, yeah. One of the things that they think this is a specific industry strategy from some of the countries. They want to turn the interior of the car into something more like your living room. So that you can, it'll make you an espresso, you can listen to music, you can watch a movie, uh, who knows, right? And so it'll be a pleasant experience and you won't mind if it takes a little longer to get where you're going. Of course, part of the problem, of they, they, that raises all kinds of cybersecurity things, which I'll just mention something that worries me, right? NVIDIA has a chip that, they already have one, but there's a new one coming out that they advertise as being able to run both your infotainment and your mission-critical navigation. And the idea is that it can do both on the same chip, and you use one chip and you'll save money, okay? Now, that may be true. But one of the things that people worry about when you're, you're running two systems together on the same hardware, it's the same thing people worried about in the airplanes when people could use the info system on the airplane to somehow jump and hack into the navigation, right? There's questions as to whether that really happened or not, but it was certainly a concern. 
right? And you can also, you could hack into the infotainment system if you wanted to, and if you got it to run hot because you put a very intensive video game on a loop, the heat could affect the operation of the side that was for mission critical stuff. And so people just haven't thought through what it means to sort of meld a travel vehicle with a, a mobile living room. But they actually said, we want to have a mobile living room. So I think there's a, there was a TV could... documentary about that living room, wasn't it called The Jetsons? I, I think I've seen that. <laughs> well, we, I've, got a, I've got a Roomba, so Rosie's taking care of at least, at least the vacuuming part, and that's about as far as we got. Um, hey, I've, so I've got a, a, a question that hasn't come up yet. So let's assume duty of care um, has been implemented, right? And it's been legislated and people do that. How does cybersecurity fit into that? Because if your car is hacked, uh, somebody else has taken over control of your car. Does the duty of care extend to a responsibility for the manufacturer to protect against uh, cyber attack or cybersecurity? Or is that a wholly separate discussion? If the robotaxi is driving, the, dri the manufacturer's got to be, that's got to be where the buck stops for whatever. doesn't matter what it is including cybersecurity, has to be, because who else is going to deal with it? Yeah, I mean, unless you can... One of the things that NHTSA is relying on right now and not acting on the Hyundai and Kia thefts that are occurring everywhere, uh, which is, a, in my opinion, is a cybersecurity issue, um, they are saying, you know, that the, an intervening criminal act, uh, basically because someone is breaking into the vehicle and using a USB cable to start it up and drive away, that intervening criminal act absolves Hyundai and Kia of any responsibility under the Safety Act to conduct a recall or to, you know, really fix the problem at all. So I wonder if the same the same legal principle would apply even if you have a duty of care as a manufacturer if you can show that uh someone from russia is hacking into the system does that absolve you of the of the duty of well, care that may toss you back into a product defect right. case yeah right i That's think that out. if right if you did not use the best or state-of-the-art methods to secure your system then that could be considered a product defect if you had a system that was easy to hack into. And But if you had done everything that was possible, I could see, and I would do it by legislation, I could see uh, an excuse if despite all your best efforts to stop a cyber attack, one happened, and you perhaps could treat that like the person who at the last minute jumps in front of the AV and gets hurt. Well, we don't expect the AV to be able to counter every single uh, action. And in that case, there would have been an action by a, a third party doing a malicious thing. Um, you're going to probably end up having some, uh, some excuses. The law won't tolerate it if you don't have some excuses. And in fact, I'd be perfectly fine if they had state-of-the-art measures that they'd implemented. I'd give them a pass uh, on that, right? Some of this sounds like what we were talking before even, whereas if, uh, I think, Phil, you gave this example of, oh, if the, the robotaxi runs the red light, oh, is it the software? Do we look and see what happened? It doesn't matter. The computer driver made this mistake. The yep. computer driver's at fault. So again, if the computer driver's hacked, 
I mean, it's like being in a cab with a human cab driver and them being on drugs or something like that and and them being hacked and doing that. I think it seems like it's a distraction to be like, oh, was it the cybersecurity issue or was it was it something some regression error in the software? It doesn't matter. It it sounds well, well it's a, it's a little tricky because um, let's say you're by the way, to 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 Michael's early question, why do people want this? What they want is their own private limousine and and the congestion, and we—it's beyond our discussion today. But there's going to be a lot of negative uh, consequences on cities if everyone gets their own private limousine, which is what the car companies are trying to sell. But the reason I go there is, uh, uh, Anthony, what you're saying makes sense. But let's consider it was a human-driven taxi, and the human-driven right. taxi driver decides to go crazy. You know, that's not the car company's fault, right? So it's—I uh, could see this going both ways. It's a—it's a little tricky. But as Bill said, if the companies are, there's a standard, there's now a cybersecurity standard from ISO and SAE. Uh, that, that number I haven't memorized well enough, I'll get it wrong if I try it, but it's at 21 something, right? 434 maybe, but you know, some number like that. Uh, and the if you followed that standard and you followed industry practices, uh, it's hard to say that you were negligent. Okay. I right. what's going on. Well, there's one thing I would say. I commented on the NIST proposed framework 2.0 for cybersecurity, which I think needed a lot of help, particularly on the corporate governance side, because a lot of the measures that a company needs to take for its products to be secure really have to come from the top down. Um, and the NIST is, is getting... Uh, getting some religion because between framework one and framework two, they actually added a governance function. And so they're starting to recognize that you really need good corporate governance and oversight in order to develop an appropriate cybersecurity strategy. But that's those damn regulators and they're just slowing down innovation. Well, but see, they, they do say if you had to comply with the NIST standard, that might be a defense. I guess what I'm saying is I'm not real happy with the current NIST standard. So if you complied with it, I don't know how great that would be. Although but they're, not, they got, they're not complying with anything right now. I mean, right, so, right. or at least they won't say they are. And I know the reality is the reality is not black and white, but it's not it's not where you want it to be. All right. Well, gentlemen, I think we should wrap up here. I don't want to take all of your time. Um, I think we possibly could, and we could sit here for hours and hours and hours. Uh, but we'd love to definitely have the two of you back. Uh, I personally, I have to sit on a plane for eleven hours, and I'm going to see if I can get from the entertainment system to the navigation system. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Please let me onto that plane. Uh, so, thank you again to uh, William Wyden, professor at University of Miami School of Law, and Philip Copeman, associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University. We've got a bunch of links in the descriptions. Thank you to Fred. Thank you to Michael. Thank you, listener. Bye-bye. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you, Anthony, and bye-bye. <laughs> for more information, visit www.autosafety.org.